No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. So that Paul and Silas want to go face to face with those who perpetrated the injustice by violating their citizenship rights as Roman citizens. And they want public exoneration. No, you send them to us. In other words, those chief magistrates need to go to the jail and they need to face Paul and Silas and they need to give an account basically. They need to be publicly shamed and Paul and Silas need to be publicly exonerated because their rights have been violated. Look how they respond in verse 38. The policemen reported these things to the chief magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They were afraid because they were guilty. They had punished Paul and Silas, violated their rights as Romans, and now they were in trouble. The chief magistrates now were guilty of a crime themselves. They had violated the rights of these two Roman citizens. And the penalties for that were were stiff. So they are rightly afraid. They are afraid that Paul will uh, report them to Caesar and the law of justice will now hammer them so that now their, their heads are basically on the guillotine. So they come in verse uh, 38. Actually, in verse uh, 39, they came and appealed to them. The word appeal means to, to console them, to request earnestly. They came to appeal, probably apologizing certainly for what they did. Verse 39, they came, the chief magistrates had ordered their beating and their imprisonment, now had to make their way down to the, to the city jail, and they appealed to Paul and Silas, and when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They knew they were caught, they knew they were guilty, and they wanted Paul and Silas to basically leave the city and quiet this whole thing up. In doing so, I think Paul and Silas received some kind of a public apology for whoever was there, the citizens, the jailer, those who are witnessing this, and some kind of an acknowledgement by the magistrates that they had, they had violated their rights. So this, I think, is a very, very important passage to see how Paul and Silas, how Christians can use their rights as citizens to protect themselves and to prevent such abuse from happening again. They had certain rights and they were standing on those rights. Well, there are other passages where they do exactly the same thing. Let's move on to Acts chapter 22 very quickly. Acts 22, starting in verse 22. Here we have Paul coming back from the third missionary journey. And he's coming back to Jerusalem. And there he uh, is arrested. And we find in verse uh, 24 that the, uh, he was arrested by the Jews. They started beating him. That got the attention of the Romans. The Romans came down and, and rescued Paul from the hands of the Jews. 
in the temple area. And so now they're taking them away. And we pick it up in verse, let's say, 22. They listen to him up to this statement. Paul's preaching to the Jews. When they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Remember, the commander allowed Paul to turn and address the crowd, the Jewish crowd there. And when he spoke of the the resurrection, that just started a great uproar. In verse uh, 23, And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, that's Paul, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him saying, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman? And the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. He had violated the rights of Paul as a Roman citizen. So Paul is using his citizenship rights here for personal protection, for his rights being violated. And the commander again was afraid because back then, if you violated those rights, then you were in trouble. And you could be severely punished if you did not, in effect, uh, respect the, the citizenship rights of the individual. So here, Paul, for a second time, is using his rights as a citizen for personal protection and his freedom to proclaim the gospel and not be beaten without a trial. So again, he's utilizing his rights as a citizen. Now turn to Acts 25. This is later on in this same uh, situation where Paul now has been taken to Caesarea because the Jews were forming a plot to try to uh, execute him in Jerusalem. So he was taken to Caesarea, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And there he's in front of Festus in Caesarea. And the Jews are trying to convince the governor Festus to allow them to bring Paul back to Jerusalem to be put on trial though. Well, that, that would be a death sentence. That's like during World War II sending a Jew back to Nazi Germany to stand trial. Guess what's going to happen? Same thing with Paul. He, he's in Caesarea. He's under Roman protection. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, is speaking to Paul and says, do you have any problem going back to Jerusalem standing trial there? Well, he knows that's, that's a no-go. That's going to be deadly. So what we read in this particular passage, Paul says in verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews as you also very well know. And if 
If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So now he's using his citizenship rights to appeal to the highest court of the land. That would be to appeal to Caesar. For us it would be like appealing all the way to the Supreme Court if they will hear it. So he's using his citizenship rights. He's saying, I'm being tried before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I am a Roman citizen. And there are laws governing my protection and how I'm to be tried and all that. And when that was beginning to be jeopardized again, he appealed to Caesar. And he could do that because he was a Roman citizen. Now, the purpose of these three passages for uh, the Apostle Paul was to, number one, to confront and make public the violation of his rights as a Roman citizen, to confront those who have violated his rights, and to make a public exoneration or uh, acknowledgement of the offense. Secondly, he gained from that not only personal protection, but certainly in Philippi, a certain protection for the church. Because they were wanting him to leave town. And they're afraid that Paul may send message to Caesar about what these two chief magistrates had done to him in violating his rights. And if he ever sent word to Caesar about what they did to him, they could be severely punished Uh, if not put to death themselves for breaking the law against a Roman citizen. So now, think of how they would have thought about the church of Philippi. They had just violated the rights of their leader, the church's leader, Paul, who is a Roman citizen. Don't you think they would think twice about abusing the rest of the church? Because all it would take, one other misstep to cause Paul to notify Caesar of what they did to him. So there's a bit of fear factor there. And I think by making such a point of it at Philippi, he did it not only to to point out what they did wrong, but ultimately it's going to flow over into the protection of the church. And I think that's one of the great observations that we need to make. And of course, through all of this, through all the legal system, even when he was arrested and even when he was incarcerated, it was an opportunity to preach the Gospel. Because that's ultimately our mission is to proclaim the Gospel. Whether we have the freedom to do it or we're incarcerated, he used every opportunity to uh, to preach Christ. So my conclusion so far is that Christians can use the legal system to make use of our rights to protect and defend ourselves and our legal rights and liberties. And we have the right to do that. Paul did that. And the effect of Paul standing up for his rights when they are violated should put fear in the civil leaders who are violating those rights because they themselves are guilty of breaking and violating our rights. And I think Christians have the right to do that. That's certainly what the Apostle Paul did. So my application now for us, in light of what we've just read and observed, 
in the book of Acts is to make uh, an application for the church today in using these very same principles for our own personal protection and also for the protection of the church as long as we are able. We're losing this quickly, by the way. But number one, Paul knew what his rights were. Do you know what your rights are as a Christian in America? See, it's fundamental. If you don't know what your rights are, then how in the world can you know when they're violated? Paul knew his rights as a Roman citizen. We need to know what our rights are as Americans. We live in a different country. We have a different citizenship rights than what we're in Rome, but we need to know our rights. And one of the most fundamental rights, of course, is the First Amendment, a part of our Constitution, which says that Congress shall make no right respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress or remedy of grievances. Now notice what is uh, commonly referred to as the Establishment Clause, and that is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, Congress is the federal government. We're talking the federal government, not state governments. Many of the states had state religions back in this day. He's talking about the federal government, Congress, up in Washington, D.C., should make no law respecting the establishment of religion. What did they have in mind when they wrote this? They had in mind that they did not want America to become like England that had an established religion a state-established religion that would be Anglicanism in England. They did not want America to have a state denomination of Christianity that was imposed upon everybody in the nation. They did not want that. That's what England had. They did not want that here. Uh, Joseph Story, one of the uh, Supreme Court justices, said the original understanding of this First Amendment was not meant to advance other religions over Christianity, but to prevent the federal government from elevating one denomination of Christianity over another, like Episcopalians over all the other denominations, or Congregationalism over all the other... No, no. They're not going to do that in America. The founders understood that the free exercise of religion was one of our natural rights. You can read about it in, in their writings. A natural right is a God-given right. And they believe that. We all have a God-given right to worship the God that we understand. Whatever that may be. But that is a, they understood that as a God-given inalienable right. And now these rights can be restricted. I mean, if a religion is, uh, promoting polygamy or child sacrifice or something like that, yeah, then the, then the law can come in and restrict it. But apart from radical examples like that, then we have the right, the government, the, the federal government will not establish any religion. They will not make any law regarding an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
And that's important. The reason why I think that this is uh, valuable for us today is because the meaning of these things have been uh, debated and twisted and turned through the history of our country. Many people oppose religious liberty today, arguing that religious freedom is merely a pretext for bigotry. They say if you want to interpret the First Amendment, basically all it does, many believe this today, all this does is give you the right to believe whatever you want, but not to practice it in the public square. This is this has become very, very a mainline today. In other words, Christianity and its teachings are okay in the confines of the privacy of your home or inside the church building, but you got to leave it there. When you go to work, you cannot bring it out of the closet. Uh, the liberal view of the First Amendment is that it's only your individual and private thoughts that are protected, basically. But once you go out into the public square, you cannot say those things or do those things out in public. That's, that's the direction we're going. That religion is acceptable when it's in your head or in your home or in your church. But we hardly need a constitutional right to say that. I mean, everyone, that's just, how could you police that anyway? If it's privately done, you don't need a, an amendment to the Constitution to protect that. But notice what they go on to say. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So we're not going to have America as, you know, a Baptist nation or a Episcopal or Presbyterian nation or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that the federal government cannot, should not, must not in any way infringe upon the exercise of my religion. And my religion tells me to have a public presence. So that's exactly what should be protected. But sadly, it's not so much today. Religious freedom should protect people's rights to speak and live and act according to their beliefs as long as it's peaceful. But they can do it in private and in public. That's part of the exercise thereof. When you exercise your faith, you got to do it after you leave the church worship service. Okay, And yet our government has consistently eroded away these rights. Religious freedom is more than simply the freedom to worship. It's also the freedom to exercise it and to practice it. Religious freedom should protect people's right to live it out at work, in the classroom, uh, in social activities. And, and that is being greatly diminished today by the legal system. But people shouldn't have to to go against their core values and beliefs in order to get a job or to work at a job, whatever your employer may say. What about the wall of separation between church and state? That's a big issue. It's a big legal issue today. The wall of separation. Well, this expression, as most of you probably know, came from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson in the year 1802 to the Baptist Association 
of Danbury, Danbury, Connecticut. And basically in that letter, what he was saying, the Baptists were concerned that the federal government, based on the First Amendment, might infringe their right to peacefully worship God. And he's writing this letter saying, no, Congress, the nation as a whole, is not going to establish a religion to assure them that they will have the freedom to be Baptists without the threat of the federal government trying to shut them down. But in 1947, in the Supreme Court case of Everson versus the Board of Education, they concluded that what Jefferson meant was that the First Amendment builds a wall of separation between church and state. And that wall must be kept high and impregnable. So now suddenly there should be a separation between church and state, which was never envisioned by the founding fathers. And as a result of this decision, Christianity now is gradually being sifted out of the public square. So prayer was taken out of public schools in 1962. The Bible was taken out in 1963. In 1971, there was a rigid three-part test to determine what religious symbols would be allowed in public spaces, government spaces. And they had to be very secular to be uh, allowed. And as a result of that three-part rigid test that the Supreme Court came up with in 1971, they then took the Ten Commandments out of the public schools in 1980. They removed all prayer from extracurricular activities in public schools like high school graduations or high school football games. You couldn't have clergy praying. You couldn't even have voluntary-led prayers uh, in, uh, in high school football games. And then you remove crosses because that's Christianity. You remove nativity scenes. You just start getting rid of everything religious. The tragedy, of course, is that that is not what Jefferson meant by that phrase. Uh, what, again, what Thomas Jefferson meant when he wrote that letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, which, by the way, was a private letter that he wrote. It has no congressional uh, authority. He had just been elected president, but he's writing a, a private letter to the, to the Baptist Association and yet the Supreme Court took that phrase, lifted it out of the context, and turned it into to all of this. Basically, again, he's just telling them that uh, the federal government is not going to prevent you from being Baptists in the state where you're at, and you will have the freedom of worship. David Barton said the wall of separation in the Danbury letter written by Jefferson was not to limit religious activities in public. It was to limit the power of the government to prohibit or interfere with such expressions. So again, that's kind of been turned upside down. Justice William Rehnquist in the uh, Supreme Court decision on uh, Wallace versus Jaffrey in 1984 said this, the wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on bad history. A metaphor which has proved useless as a guide to judging. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. There is simply no historical foundation for the proposition that the framers intended to build a wall of separation. 
You can go on and look at Justice William O. Douglas, who wrote in 1952 of America that we are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. So this great wall of separation between state and church, you find many within the legal system earlier on that certainly differed with that idea. In 1892, the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States, Justice David Brewer concluded for the court that this is a Christian nation. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's really a Christian. It means that there's basically a Christian worldview that the majority basically live by, not affirming everyone's a true believer. But isn't that interesting that the Supreme Court even acknowledged there that we're a Christian nation? John Adams, one of our founding fathers, said our Constitution was made for only a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So you find that the, uh, the concept of the First Amendment <clears throat> should protect not only our religious beliefs, but also the exercise of those beliefs. And yet, unfortunately, again, they're constantly being under attack. The, the Founding Fathers did not intend to remove Christianity out of government. It's interesting that the very first session of the very first Congress in the very first week of that first session of the first Congress in 1789, they approved and enacted legislation providing for paid chaplains for both the House and the Senate. So how in the world do you end up believing that you need to sift out all Christianity out of government when that's one of the first things they did? Because that the First Amendment was not meaning what it has later come to mean. We also have the national motto, in God we trust. We have one nation under God. We have national days of prayer. And yet uh, the liberals, the judicial tyranny of our own day is uh, rewriting laws and reinterpreting the idea of our founding fathers. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 2 real quick in your Bibles because I want you to, to see how Paul, who used his own rights as a Roman citizen to protect himself and to protect the freedom of the church as much as that could to proclaim the gospel, notice how he exhorts Timothy in how to pray. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 and 2. He says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, Timothy is ministering at Ephesus. So he wants Timothy to teach the church at Ephesus that when you pray, you need to pray for all of our civil legislators and leaders. Pray for our governing magistrates. And this is what you need to pray for them. Pray for them in verse 2 so that we can lead a tranquil, peaceful, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Pray that the government will not persecute us. 
Pray that the government will not take away our rights and liberties to worship God. Pray that we can live with a, in a tranquil and quiet life without the threat of the government coming in and taking those freedoms away from us. So in effect, what he is encouraging the church to do is to continue to pray that their rights as citizens, their freedom of worship would be protected and the government would not take those away. Because then you're not going to have be able to live a life that's tranquil and quiet in all godliness and dignity. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be run out. You're going to be chased. So that the very prayer that we're to pray involves a prayer for God to protect our religious freedom and the freedom of speech, which is very much a part of this. So as citizens, as Christians, I should say, we have a dual citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. That's our, that's our priority citizenship. The most important citizenship. But we're also citizens of the countries in which we live. And we are to be respectful and obedient to the laws of our country, but also to appreciate and use our rights to defend us when we're able. That's why Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, you have a duty as a Christian to render unto the Caesar, the government what belongs to him. Okay? And he didn't say, or the things that are God's unto God, but he said, and. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So we have responsibilities in both directions. We have responsibility in our worship of God and we have responsibilities in our worship of, or not worship, but our obedience to Caesar, our governing authority, whatever country that may be. We're to, we're to be good citizens. We're to utilize the rights of our citizenship to help advance the gospel. That's the main point that he's, that I think is being emphasized. So what is our mission as a church? Well, our mission, of course, is the Great Commission. The purpose statement that the elders have come up with for Northwest Bible Church. The purpose of Northwest Bible Church is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. But we want protection in doing that. We have citizenship rights to do that. And we need to pray that God in His mercy would continue to protect those so that we can accomplish our mission. Can we do it under persecution? Yes. But we would rather be free to do it, right? So we need to pray for those protections. Now, free speech and religious liberty are under attack today. Patty and I recently went and saw the movie No Safe Spaces. And the college campuses today, they're a mess. Uh, free speech is being taken away. Religious liberty taken away. It's interesting that during a five-hour Senate hearing with Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, back in April of 2018, some Republican senators said that they were worried that Facebook might feel pressure to censor conservatives. And one senator illustrated the point with an eye-popping statistic. Listen to this. 
He said 40% of young people, young Americans, believe that the First Amendment is dangerous. 40% of young Americans believe that the First Amendment is dangerous because somebody's feelings might get hurt by free speech. Is that not mind-blowing? That they begin to think that the First Amendment should protect their little fragile egos from somebody offending them by what they say. So, do away with free speech because my feelings are now offended. Well, that's not what our right as Americans actually says. We have the right to free speech. Not stupid speech. You're not going to be in a theater and yell out fire that causes bodily harm. But we have free speech. Offensive speech, even if it hurts somebody's feelings, is protected by the First Amendment. Now, Christians should always speak the truth in love. But truth is often offensive. And we don't try to be offensive. Some of us are kind of offensive, but we shouldn't try to be offensive. We should speak the truth in love. But the gospel offends people. People today don't want to hear that they're sinners, that they're going to stand before a holy God and give an account for all their sins. They don't want to hear that. To them, that is hate speech. That is offensive speech. And they would love to, the liberals today would love to shut us up. But as Christians in America, we have the rights. And if we don't stand up and make an issue out of those rights, we will lose those rights because the current drift of our culture is to deny us those rights. The Heritage Foundation said the most common allegation in religious freedom cases today is the charge of discrimination coming from the LGBTQ community. Of course, in 2015... <clears throat> the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage across the country. So now it's legal. This is having profound implications in our country. Al Mohler said that the rise of the LGBTQ has created an inevitable collision between two incompatible liberties. Sexual liberty and religious liberty. And guess which one will win? Sexual liberty is winning. We're being denied our religious liberty because the culture is embracing sexual liberty. So that if I affirm that homosexuality is a sin because I believe it because that's what the Word of God says, if I affirm that I believe that when the Bible says that gay marriage is a sin, then that is now going to be understood. And by the way, I do believe and affirm those things. That is now will be viewed as hate speech. And my uh, my free speech may be denied. You know, for example, we we, uh, broadcast our services on YouTube. If you're sick and at home, you can watch it live. We also archive them on YouTube. But YouTube is going through a purging process right now to shut down or get rid of whatever content they don't approve of. And they're starting to approve conservative uh, speeches or content and religious as well. So there, it may come a day fairly soon where we are taken off of YouTube because of our stance. 
Google, Twitter, Facebook, all of these organizations are now censoring, taking away the right of free speech. And yet we're guaranteed that in our Constitution. By the way, that's why when I do internet searches now, I don't use Google. I use Opera. And then I use the DuckDuckGo uh, website because apparently it's, it, it, they don't uh, screen what come, pops up on your search engine. Just a means of protection. Because if, you, if you're using Google, there'll be a lot of good stuff that you won't be able to see because they're being censored. Christian businesses suffer uh, as well. I mean, really, should florists and photographers and bakers be forced to provide their services for same-sex weddings and celebrations that violate their religious beliefs when there's plenty of other similar businesses that would be more than gladly to provide those services? And yet, we've seen in recent years all of these issues come up because our rights as Christians are being attacked by our culture, by Congress, by the judiciary. You could flip the question around, should a lesbian graphic designer or printer be forced to create a flyer for religious groups rally opposing same-sex marriage? And the answer would be, yeah, they both should have the right to say no. Government should not force us to deny our the exercise of my religious principles. In courts and Congress, we have seen a continual chipping away of our religious liberties, threatening to penalize religious convictions that oppose the LBGTQ agenda. And this is jeopardizing all sorts of freedoms and blessings like federal tax exemptions from religious colleges, schools, pregnancy centers, soup kitchens run by churches, drug addiction programs from churches, homeless shelters from churches, adoption agencies that serve 70 million Americans every year that oppose gay marriage. All those things are now threatened to be shut down. And particularly if the Equality Act passes, we talked about that some earlier in my Sunday school class. The Equality Act now is saying that sexual orientation and gender identity should now be protected as civil rights. That's the Equality Act. So that every institution that's funded in any way by the government, whether it's schools, hospitals, public accommodation centers, employers must comply with the Equality Act in terms of their who they employ. They can't discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And that's ultimately going to make its way into the church. H.R. 5 would empower the federal government to impose civil and criminal punishments on citizens who dissent. That would include medical professionals, parents. Because if you have a teenage daughter who now thinks that she's a boy and she wants to go have surgery to become a boy, your parental rights are going to be challenged now as well. The tentacles of this thing are massive. Businesses, charities, their rights to freedom of speech and freedom of religion are all threatened. You know, what's so amazing if this thing passes, women's rights 
are going to be undermined. Because women's rights have always stood up for women that are biological women, but now you, you can't say that a woman was born biologically a female. Could have been a male. And now she's a woman. So the whole thing is turned upside down. Athletes, sports, think of the changes that we've seen in our culture based upon this. The Equality Act has already passed the House. It's passed the House. It's now in the Senate. So what is our biblical response to all this stuff? Real quick. Well, we need to pray. We certainly need to pray for our government. Pray confidently that God controls the hearts of kings and presidents and judges and senators and representatives. Pray that He would preserve our citizenship rights in America. Next, we need to use, like the Apostle Paul, our citizenship rights to protect our religious liberties. That's what Paul did. That's what we should do. We should elect people who will support our freedoms and liberties. Everyone who runs from office ought to be asked the question, do you support the First Amendment and its right for religious liberty and freedom of speech? And that should be one of the criteria we use in who we we vote for. We also need to support those Christian organizations that are out fighting those legal battles. It's an expensive battle they're in. But like the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, or the ACLJ, that's uh, Jay Sekulow's organization, American Center for Law and Justice, or Liberty Council with Matt Staver. These guys are out there on the front line picking cases where Christians are having their rights violated and they're trying to defend them to protect those rights and liberties and you can support them financially. You need to speak out when you have an opportunity. And that this is you have to be wise in this. Uh, in some job settings, this is you have to be wise and careful. But we need to be able to at least speak out to our those who represent us in government and let our thoughts and opinions know and encourage them to vote in a way that will support biblical values. If you don't know who your state senator and representatives are, you can go to oklegislature.gov, put in your address, and it'll tell you who your state senator representative is and everything else, all the people that are in your district. And you can uh, go to their website, send them an email. And I think everyone who's in the uh, House District 5 should contact Representative Kendra Horn and say no on impeaching the president. And I think if we are silent, this is our right to do this. We're Americans. We have these freedoms and liberties for now. And if we don't speak out, then we will lose that right. Paul spoke out. He sets the the example for us. And finally, just to recognize that if we end up losing our religious liberties and freedom of speech, then prepare to serve Christ and suffer for the cause and the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, when Paul wrote his letter, I'll conclude with this. When he wrote his letter to Philippi, where he had been beaten and thrown in prison and had this 
this face-to-face confrontation with the civil magistrates there, when he, later on when he's writing the letter back to that church, he says this in chapter 1. He says, For to you has been granted for Christ's sake. In other words, God has given to you two gifts. The first one is to believe in Him. It has been granted to you to believe in Him. Faith is a gift of God. But also, a gift that sometimes we wish we don't have to accept. That is to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. They witnessed His beatings. They witnessed the abuse. So if the government turns against us and takes away our rights and freedoms, then we need to be mentally prepared to live out our Christian faith in love in a hostile world. We don't try to go out and be martyrs, but we must be willing to suffer for His sake. So may God give us the wisdom in taking Scripture and the principles of the Apostle Paul and using his rights as a citizen to protect himself and to protect the church and the freedom of the Gospel to preach it. And may God give us and give the church in America the grace and the boldness and the courage to do the same. That we might continue to enjoy the rights that we have as Americans involving the freedom of religion and freedom of speech. So that the Gospel might be proclaimed without persecution. Well, may God help us to do that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do uh, thank You, Lord, for how we can glean from Scripture and from the life of the Apostle Paul principles that can impact us today because we're facing many of the same battles that he faced And the church certainly is not a political organization. We're a gospel organization. That's our calling. But Lord, we want, we would prefer, we desire to proclaim the gospel in peace without the threat of going to jail and prison or punishment. And so we pray, Lord, that You would bless our leaders, that You would bless our judiciary, the executive branch, the legislative branch, that their hearts would be turned by Your sovereign hand, that we might continue to enjoy the blessings of freedom, freedom of religion and free speech so that we can stand up for Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.